Our speakers tonight are Shauna Moran, Helen Haste, and Scott Sider. Um, Dr. Moran earned her doctorate in human development and psychology from Harvard University and is currently a research assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Clark University in Worcester. She is also principal investigator of a six-country study exploring how college students' life purposes influence their experience of service in the community and how community service influences the development of a life purpose. Helen Haste received her PhD from University of Bath. She's currently principal investigator for the Harvard Graduate School of Education's Spencer Foundation funded New Civics Early Career Scholars Program, which supports doctoral students whose research focuses on civic education and civic engagement. She is fellow of the British Academy of Social Science, the British Psychological Society, and the Royal Society of Arts. Scott Sider earned a doctorate in human development and psychology from Harvard University and is currently an associate professor of education at Boston University, where his research focuses on the civic development of adolescents and young adults. Tonight's discussion is moderated by Adam Riley, a reporter for WGBH News and host of WGBH's podcast, The Scrum. He previously worked for the Boston Phoenix and the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to our panelists. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thank you all for braving the really unpleasant weather to come here tonight. I wouldn't have been surprised if we had no one in the chairs in front of us, so it's great that you all made it. Um, I want to start out by asking Shauna, whose uh, brainchild this event is, to explain why you uh, thought an event like this, on this topic, at this point in time, was a good idea. How did you uh, come to suggest this to the afternoon? Well, I think that's an, that it's an amazing time right now to uh, investigate and to have public discussions about how we compose this, the civic space, that it is part of us as much as we are a part of it. And so a lot of my research has to do with life purpose, how individuals come to see that they contribute to things larger than themselves and to make it part of just the way they see the world and how they how we pick out opportunities to make a difference and so uh, I have worked with uh, Scott and Helen and I know that they both have wonderful points of view that are different than mine and so I thought that if we all got together including you <laughs> that that we will compose a wonderful conversation about uh, and just so I'm clear, was the election the, the hook for you deciding that this conversation should occur? Was it pegged to the presidential election or not? It was not pegged to the presidential election, although that presents much fodder in the sense of how people have become energized, uh, both for what they feel like they might be losing as well as uh, against what they don't like. And so there's this energy that has come in to the arena, perhaps, and 
uh, ways that uh, a lot of people in a generation haven't seen. Before we dive into the official conversation, now that you've explained the genesis of it, uh, it occurred to me as I was trying to think through how the conversation could flow that we should probably start by defining uh, the term civic engagement because initially when uh, I was asked to, to moderate, I thought, oh, well, you know, I, I understand what that is and that totally makes sense. And the more I thought about it, the less clear the meaning became to me, the slipperier the term seemed to get. So I would love to hear the three of you, maybe starting with Helen and, and working uh, out to Shauna through Scott, could you just explain what it is you understand civic engagement to be? And then um, maybe, well, actually, I have a follow-up question, but we'll cast that after you define the term for us. So Helen, what is civic engagement? Well, I'd like to say what it actually isn't. I think most people in this room, if they were educated in this country, would have done a course called civics. Uh, in school. And in that course, you, did, you learned some very useful things about the three branches of government and how a law was passed. Uh, and maybe a bit more, but that's basically it. And some of you felt very enthusiastic about supporting the system and voting and so on. Many of you, at least at that time, thought, what's that about? And I think that civic engagement um, is not just about, for example, voting. I mean, Another thing we can say is that in, many, in recent years, in many countries, there's been a, a kind of moral panic. Young people are not voting. So why have civics course, courses failed in the states and other countries that have civics? In other countries, why is it that young people aren't voting? Which is a really important question. But actually, voting is a relatively small part of being a citizen. It's a very important part, a relatively small part. Because most of the time when we are involved in civic activity. In it's about the community, the local community. It could be the international community. It could be worrying about a climate change. It could be worrying about a war. It could be worrying about the fact that our trash isn't being, being collected in our street and wanting to do something about it. So civic engagement is wanting to do something for, as Shana said, the public good, wanting to participate in the local community activities, the things that make our lives comfortable and, and good, uh, and having the skills and the motivation and the capacity to make to join other people to do that. So civic engagement is about the motives and the skills that enable us to have an impact in the public sphere. Voting is a part of it, but it's not the only part of it. Scott, do you agree with that definition that Helen just laid out, or would you expand on it, or maybe take issue with parts of it? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think I generally generally agree. I, um, when people when people when I talk about what I study, I usually say I study civic development in teenagers and young adults, and 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 I usually define civic development as you know the process by which young people come to come to develop the skills, capacities, motivation. To, to fulfill their responsibilities as, as members of a community. And that's, you know, that can be a local community, that can be a, a national community, that can be a global community. And, um, and I think it's interesting because in some ways, you know, and I think of civic engagement as, as the actions that, that manifest as a result of, of those civic commitments, right? And it could be voting, um, but it could mm -hmm. be participating in a protest, it could be writing a letter to a newspaper, um, you know, sort of mm -hmm. advocating advocating a position. It could be joining the town meeting in your, um, you know, in your, in your local community. Um, 
What I think is interesting about, in some, in some ways what I think is interesting about this, and I think, Helen, you sort of alluded to this in some ways, is that in the U.S. context, like, the idea of sort of civic responsibility, in some way, there, there is some tension with sort of our, our, also, our, our commitment to individual liberty as well and individual freedom. And, this, and, and I, think, I think that young people are, are sometimes, you know, well, let me say it like this, from, from my dissertation, which, you know, a decade ago now, it was a different context in many ways, but, um, but still, still, I think, relevant. I asked young people, high school students, I said, what responsibility, what obligations do you have as, as a citizen? And, and the young people I was interviewing really resisted the idea that they had obligations. Um, whereas, and, and I don't think that they, I don't think they resisted the idea that they have obligations as family members, as workers. You know, I think that they sort of recognize that, you know, those titles to come with obligations. But I think that, you know, and I think Helen, you were alluding to this, that sort of a strong, a strong community, however you define it, does require its citizens to, to fulfill responsibilities and to fill roles. And, um, and so, so I'm interested in the ways in which our schools and other institutions are, are engaging young people and sort of developing the motivation and the capacity to, 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 to take on those responsibilities. Shauna, how would you define the topic that we are here talking about tonight? Well, I think in general, I agree with the way civic engagement is defined. It's not a term that I actually use a whole lot, engagement. I focus on contribution. So con means with and tribute or, you know, has to do with tribe. So it's doing it together. You, you uh, put your energy or your resources into something that's larger than yourself. So I don't limit it to politics. I really like the idea of the coffee house, uh, where it's the, the non-state part that makes sure that communities work is just as important to me as the state and the government. And so, uh, and in some ways, that's probably where the founding fathers, you know, they were meeting in the coffee houses at the time. <laughs> uh, and I, I believe that there's both contribution to institutions as they already exist, they work. Institutions are how we uh, interact with each other. Even money is an institution because it's a way that we interact with each other. Same with marriage. Uh, so I tend to take a contribution perspective. And so with purpose, I'm interested in how people of all ages live their lives forward because we live our lives forward through the uh, through the windshield, not driving by the rearview mirror, how, how we take responsibility, and that's, that's purpose. That's kind of a commitment that I make to the common good for why I am going to do what I'm going to do into the common good. And I think responsibility is an interesting word. I agree that people are terrified of responsibility, and so when I work with my students at Clark, I tend to break it apart as response and ability. It's your ability to respond to the common good and to put your part into it because you matter. It's not all about you, but you matter. I think, all, Helen, you wanted to hop in. I'm gonna come back and say, yeah, if I can come back, yes. I think one thing that's useful to bear in mind is, is what actually does motivate young people. I mean, a lot of research shows if you ask young people we're talking now about teenagers, middle school to, you know, to post-college, that kind of range, like 12 to 25. You say, you give them a questionnaire, how interested are you in politics? Or are you interested in politics? About 3% will say they're interested in politics. If you say, uh, are you involved in anything to do with the environment, it goes up to like 70%. 
If you say, are you doing anything um, in your community, like helping the people in the community or doing something active, you get, again, about 60%. But they don't call it politics. But they have a sense of what uh, Shana's talking about, a, a sense of responsibility, a, a caring about the common good. Mm. Uh, but they don't call it politics. And I think that's where the problem of the terminology has, mm -hmm. has come in. Um, and if you ask people what, what gets them involved, it's a single issue often, which they don't see as a political issue. It's a, something that they feel, um, you know, I care passionately about this thing. It could be inequality, it could be, it could be a, a race issue, it could be the fact, as I said earlier on, the trash isn't being collected. But they then feel a personal responsibility, responsibility, to actually do something about it. So it, 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 it devolves that to them. As, as, as people to say, I, I care about this, I want to do something about it, how do I do it? And it then becomes something that engages them in the public good immediately, but not going via the conventions of the party or whatever. Um, I mean, I think, I think something that's complicated about that, which is, which is interesting, like, you know, is that, you know, so civic engagement is a very broad term, right? It could, you know, it could encapsulate everything from you know, it couldn't, you could be sort of volunteering at your local homeless shelter, or you could be sort of advocating for, you know, like, you know, ch ch changes in laws that you find to be unjust. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and so I think to Helen's point, like, we, when, we ask, when we ask young people, are you engaged in, in sort of service, like community service of some sort, like, which you might, so, sort of a version of doing good, so to mm -hmm. speak. Like, like, we do actually get extra, very high levels of participation mm -hmm. in community service, you know, in part because high schools and colleges are, you know, are sort of emphasizing that and encouraging that and providing vehicles for that. I will say an, interest, an interesting thing that I think in sort of the civic engagement, civic development <coughs> research is that on some level it seems like common sense to think that if you're volunteering in a homeless shelter, let's say, um, or sort of on behalf of the environment, that that will increase your engagement in sort of, you know, working against policies that led to homelessness in the first place. Like, I mean, and that's certainly the, that's certainly the goal, right, you know, of many of those, of many, of many such programming. It's not, I would say it's not clear that that's how it works, um, mm -hmm. in the sense that it is possible, it, se it seems at least possible that what young people are doing is saying, well, I did my bit. Like, mm -hmm. I volunteered at that homeless shelter, and I did my bit, you know, I've sort of satisfied my responsibility as a mm -hmm. citizen. I don't need to take part in that protest, push, you know, pushing for a higher minimum wage that, that might actually, or pushing for more affordable housing that might have reduced the number of people, you know, the need for the homeless shelter in the first place. And so, that, My hunch would be that that would apply to older people as well. Uh, am yes. I wrong about that? That's a good question. That's a good question. I don't, I don't feel like I'm as, in, in truth, like I don't feel like I'm as knowledgeable about you know, civic, civic engagement at the, the older level. But I do think, I mean, obviously we all have, we all have, we all have, you know, finite capacity, um, and in fact, you know, and in fact, you know, if you look across the the lifespan, the least the least civically, which is the least civically engaged group, are parents of young children, um, you know, which which I'm which I'm very which I'm very sympathetic to, like, um, you know, because that is just a moment in your life where you have, are particularly low in capacity to, to to do either of those two things, right? So, although raising good children who contribute is probably a tremendous civic engagement uh, contribution. It's just not seen that way because we have separated and we've said, okay, this is what can be civic engagement. It has to be politics. And politics now is kind of a, a dirty word, um, you know, because politics is this other and that nobody wants to be associated with politics. But you're kind of, it's difficult to not be involved in politics if you care about 
even your neighborhood. There are politics there because politics has to do with the way we decide shared tasks, shared I think, responsibilities. But I think your point about, you know, you can get involved in, say, um, the community helping and not recognize that the reason that these people are homeless or whatever is because the, the local, or the, the laws don't help them or the economic situation makes them victims. I mean, a lot of people don't, don't look for the larger picture, but on the other hand, certainly some people do, and in, even getting involved without even questioning the system does give you certain skills. And if something allows you to get tipped towards thinking, well, why are these people homeless? Or why do we have such inequality? Or why are certain ethnic groups suffering more than others from violence or whatever? I mean, when you start asking that question, that's another, another level of, of awareness and appreciation. And you can come to it through, um, you can come to it through experience. Some people do, not everybody does. Uh, and of course, you can also build that into education as well. But I think we shouldn't expect too much of people. I mean, I, we can't expect people to be active across the board. There are people we all know who are basically saints because they're working all the time for some kind of community or, or, or civic cause. Possibly their families are not so keen on the fact that they're out all the time. But apart from that, I mean, but most people will have a particular thing that they'll spend time Exactly. On. I don't think that... And that's fine, you know. That's what purpose is. Why? What's your part that you're going to pick up? Shani, your point about how it is inherently political to raise children is a really, really interesting one that's never occurred to me before. For one thing, it makes me feel better about my lack of uh, traditional involvement in <laughs> the broader community because I spend a lot of time focused on my two daughters. It also will uh, stick in my mind the next time one of them poses a big, heavy question, and I kind of grumble and say, you know, go see what your mom is doing or something. I'll try to do a better job answering. Um, all three of you, I think, have talked about civic engagement as, uh, you know, in one way, shape, or form, some way, shape, or form, involving an attunedness to the, the common good and a willingness mm -hmm. to, to participate in it in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and you've given different examples, all of which strike me as kind of inherently commendable. And for me, this brings up a question that I had coming into this event tonight, which is whether you see civic engagement as an inherently good thing, or whether there are ways, in fact, to be engaged civically that are either value neutral or uh, immoral if you are civically engaged in support of a polis that is uh, ethically or morally bankrupt. So how about it? I get often asked the question, well, how about the fact that Hitler youth were really very civically engaged and very skilled at it? Uh, and I say, oh dear, yes, that's the question. It's a, it is a question because obviously we are talking about skills that can be used for all kinds of purposes many of them deeply immoral, many of them simply, as you say, value neutral. Uh, and I do think that if we're talking about um, improving civic education to improve civic skills, we have to build alongside it uh, an appreciation of the moral and ethnic, ethical dimensions of what we're doing and, and a realization that you know, 
just because something hits you as being something that you care about, you have to think, well, actually, where does this fit into the larger picture? And that's where critical consciousness comes in. That's where the kind of work that actually Scott is doing comes in. So it isn't enough to educate skills. You do have to educate the capacity to make judgments, the capacity to be critical and thoughtful and see the larger picture and get beyond the kind of immediate particular responses that you might have because your particular local community doesn't um, punish you if you're racist or if you're sexist or whatever, or homophobic. I mean, yes, it, isn't, it doesn't exist in isolation from, um, from the value systems. But that's the problem, yeah. But that makes it, it, it partly uh, a feat of imagination to see beyond just the here and now and the immediate needs. And um, I worked at MIT helping people think about the ripple effects of what they were creating. And uh, I tended to focus on just a few questions. Does it, does it uh, enable people, more people, or does it reduce what people can do? Does it uh, widen the capacities as we move forward, or does it narrow down the capacities? Things like that. So, but again, that's, that's sharing my values, right? Those are value-laden ways of thinking about it. But I was thinking in terms of creativity as cultural development, if you broaden the capacities of the common good versus one person over another person, then the sum should be the more than the whole should be the, more than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. idea. So I was sitting thinking for a few minutes. I, I, to be honest, that's in some ways a more philosophical question than I, than I often find myself thinking about, but um, it's a really good question. Um, my instinct, you know, and I could certainly be convinced otherwise of this, because as I said, I haven't thought about it a ton, but my instinct is that civic, like, civic engagement in and of itself is an inherent good. Um, mm. You know, that certainly civic engagement, you know, people can be civically, you know, can, can have civic actions that are directed towards you know, awful ends, but that, but that on balance, I think civic engagement is a good thing um, for, you know, for, a, for a society and that we want as many people to be civically engaged as possible. And I guess, like, I guess there's sort of two, way, two ways I sort of think about that. Like, um, so, I mean, so there's research um, by, um, by Larry Bartles, who's a political, uh, political scientist at Princeton, who's just sort of looked at the influence of sort of div uh, individuals upon their elected representatives' votes. And, um, and, and, and maybe not surprisingly, but, but soberingly, um, the individuals in the lower third of the income distribution have no discernible influence at all upon the, the, voting, the voting of their United States senator. Um, they're less likely to vote, they're less likely to make political contributions, they're less likely to be you know, sort of socially connected to those individuals, whereas, you know, and this will again not be surprising, but folks in the top third of the income distribution have a disproportionate impact upon mm -hmm. the voting preferences of their, of the voting, the voting records of their elected representatives. And, and so on some level, it seems to me that whatever we can do to, to encourage a greater proportion of individuals being engaged, you know, that just, that, that will sort of, like, it seems to me that that's a good thing in terms of sort of increasing the, the number of voices that we have influencing the directions, you know, the direction things go. And, and just as a very personal example, so today was actually vote, you know, the election day for sort of a local election within my town. And, um, you know, school committee, town meeting, and so on and so forth. And, and my wife sort of said this morning, she said, make sure you vote, um, you, know, for, you know, for lots of reasons. But one, she said, you know, we want, we want those elected representatives to keep on knocking on our door. 
and asking us like what we think about these issues, right? And because they get those lists of who voted in the last election, and that's how they target who they go to. And so, you know, so there's no easier way to have a disproportionate impact on your town's, you know, civic direction than to be one of those, you know, people who votes, you know, the, the relatively small number of people who vote in a local election when there's nothing bigger going on. It's kind of interesting. You asked earlier on, Adam, about the election. Was that important? And I think it's been, I say the election will, this isn't only one election. There's an election here, of course, which, of course, you're close to. But that election has had affected the entire world. But we had an election in Britain. We, we voted to, voted, we didn't, some of us did. There was a vote which resulted in the decision that we should leave the EU. We've had other um, examples. We're having a, the French election next weekend, which is quite frightening in terms of what consequences it might have, depending, of course, on where your politics lie. But that's um, it's whatever. It's an upheaval. I think the, when you have um, major social changes that we're, we're seeing across the world, because things are changing quite radically in lots of ways, what's ha we're seeing also an upsurge of response on the streets here in Boston. We've had people coming out to participate in, in forms of um, protest and, and civic action, or bearing witness, perhaps, which has been quite unusual. I mean, you don't usually see so many people out on the streets in a place like Boston. Um, and we, in other countries and other cities throughout the world, there's been a, a, a lot of involvement of people saying, look, we want to make our voices heard. We want our representatives to listen to what we're saying. We want, we want someone to take notice. And I think that's an important thing. Now, some people might think that that's not a good thing. But on balance, if the public are making a response, this surely is a, a sign of democracy. But isn't that happening because on a global scale, accepted notions about what the common good is are being contested right now to a degree yeah. that maybe they haven't been contested in the last half century? I think, um, I think what's interesting, we've been living, at least in the West, and I guess elsewhere, on a tide of optimistic progressivism for the last several decades. The feeling that actually things are getting better, slowly, but getting better, and where our various activities as educators or administrators are moving in, or writers and broadcasters, generally moving towards a more civilized, a more equitable, a more fair, a more humane society. And all we have to do is keep on the same route. Uh, and I think that we've been slightly lulled into a, a sense of, of, of false security by this, because what we haven't realized is that there are many people in, in many countries who are not happy with this progressivism. And, uh, and what we're seeing, I think, in this country and other countries, are people saying, look, I don't want this, I don't like this, I want something different, or it's not serving me, it's not serving my, my needs. So I think that, the, the, that we've been a, a bit, dis, you know, a bit sort of lulled, as I said, by this progressive, gentle progressive tide. And now we're seeing that actually not everybody is in favor of that. And it took the events in the worldwide events, which are different in different places, to, for, to, for other people who are not happy to come out and say, well, actually, I don't want this. And I think we're seeing that. And it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a manifestation of democracy, but it's worrying in that we haven't yet perhaps learned how to, how to cope with it. It's interesting how the media are actually responding to it as well, because the media are getting quite frantic about how to interpret what's going on, both right and left with media. But, yeah, that's true. We've talked a bit about 
young people and uh, perceptions about uh, them, their own notion of what is interesting or exciting or compelling and what isn't. Uh, I feel like we should talk about technology because that is so much caught up in the stereotype that a lot of people, myself included, have of, say, you know, teenagers, tweens. I have one kid who's a tween and will very, very soon be a teen, although she's already there spiritually. But, you know, there, there's a stereotype, I think, that some people have of millennials and those younger than them uh, only wanting to sit around and, you know, send Instagrams of uh, whatever they're sending Instagram, or, or, you know, Snapchat with their friends, not engage in deep conversation or deep thinking. Um, I succumb to that stereotype myself on occasion, even though I feel like rationally I know it's unfair, emotionally I feel like there's something <laughs> to it, but I may be just an old fart. So, um, Shauna and Scott, what is the impact of technology, in particular where youth are concerned, on civic engagement or purpose formation and purpose formation? Go ahead, please go ahead. Um, okay, I'll, I'll start. I mean, I guess, I guess I think that in many ways, like, technology has had a profound impact on, on, on civic engagement in this world we're living in. And I guess, you know, I'll, I'll, use two, I'll give two examples, I think. Um, so I would, so I personally, oh, I personally, I'm not supposed to do that. Um, I, I, I personally think that, um, that I would describe the Black Lives Matter movement, which, you know, began in 2012, I think, I believe, 2012, no, uh, no, 2013, 14, as um, I would describe it as the most important social movement that I've been around to see. Um, and and that began, in, you know, in part, you know, as a result of social media, right? Like Absolutely. that. That you know, it, it, by social media, I mean people recording the, you know, I'll say the the extrajudicial killing of black men by police officers. People recording that on their phones. That that being shot out across the world, and there being a response, you know, a a response in the form of this social movement to that. Like, um, and so so I mean. That's, I mean, we no longer, you know, for, you know, we no longer, as a citizenship, as a citizenship, I guess, like we, you know, as a citizenry, we, we no longer have to sort of wait for, um, for a news station to decide to cover something, mm -hmm. right? Like there is now this opportunity for someone who has witnessed something unjust to, to sort of beam that out across the world. And, um, you know, and then most, most recently, or maybe not most recently, but um, just within the last few weeks, I mean, I find, I find what has happened with United Airlines to be fascinating, mm, right? Like in the sense mm. that, you know, this, this individual was, you know, was treated very harshly, like, and I think many people would say inappropriately and unjustly. Someone recorded it. And there has been a, you know, and and there has been a massive impact on that on that organization, um, you know, that the, you know, which which clear like which based on I would say like their fumbling attempts to to deal to, to respond to the situation initially suggests to me that you know cert, cert, like the the people who sort of took you know took video and tw and sort of tweeted that out and sent that out and you know said I'm you know and, and wrote over their Facebook page I'm not going to be using United Airways anymore. I mean, they they had a demonstrable impact, right, on on this organization changing a policy, you know, and um, and I think we're seeing. I think so. I think that um, I think that you know, we sometimes refer to that kind of civic engagement as thin participation, right, in the sense that it it doesn't take that much. It's it takes less effort to go you know to go to your Facebook page and you know like somebody else's post or forward something along than it does to go to a protest or to write a letter to a newspaper editor. And so I think at times we've, we've been dismissive of 
of that kind of thin participation as a form of civic engagement. But, but I do think we are seeing the ways in which it can have profound, profound effects on organizations, institutions, you know, et cetera. I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't point out. Everything you say yeah. makes a ton of sense. I feel like it's, it has to be acknowledged how many of those cases involving the extrajudicial killing mm -hmm. of, of black men did not result in criminal convictions for the people That's true. who, and now we also have an attorney general who is pulling back the DOJ's oversight of local law enforcement. Yeah. Not that that, un, you know, yeah. that yeah. doesn't invalidate mm. the point you made. Black so. Lives Matter was huge, but um, I just felt like I had to yeah. acknowledge that. And it's interesting, and I'll just say one more thing, which yeah. please let me turn Sean, but you know, from, and it's interesting from like this question of, does civic engagement necessitate action? Like, I think that if you look at sort of attitudes across our country, our country is far more attuned to issues of racial injustice than, than we were 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, this, like, it has absolutely had an impact on awareness of racial injustice. To your point about is it, is it resulting in, in action is, 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 is a fair question. Sean, what do you think the impact of technology is when it comes to the things that you focus on? Speed. That, uh, that it's immediate feedback in a lot of ways or very quickly. So if somebody, if a young person sends something out there uh, and can get, it can go viral, it can be picked up by major media. And so it depends on what they, they send out and they may think it's great and they could get a huge backlash and that creates a lot of anxiety. That's kind of a negative impact. Uh, and so then they'll recoil, is what I see, is they, they recoil from, uh, again, the online civic space, which then can translate. That, that can create a ripple effect where they just recoil as well. But it's also on a positive side where young people or people of any age can, can get that feedback loop of, yes, I do matter. Yes, I can make a difference. And that also can create an amplifying feedback loop so they will step into increasingly larger and maybe less technologically uh, mediated civic spaces as well. So like any technology, it, it can go either way. It could be positive or negative for the development of purpose, the development of civic engagement. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I, can I come in? I think the thing is we, we mustn't underestimate the sense, as Shona says, of that young people get for the first time that young people have a sense they can, their voice can be heard mm -hmm. and visibly their voice can be heard. I mean, you know, it, it's something that we, didn't happen before. Young people didn't have that kind of sense that they had a voice. Mm -hmm. It may be an illusion, but it's an important part of, of empowerment that you feel you can actually say something and do something. And we are underestimating um, the role that media is already playing in young people's lives. So I think we're also underestimating the role it, it can play. Um, I find myself often talking about technology and I get out my iPhone and make a point. I haven't got it on my pocket, so I can't do it. Um, maybe I could borrow yours, but I won't. No, it's okay, we wave it up. Hmm. You could access every single piece of information in the entire history of the world on your iPhone. So why are we telling kids to leave their toys at the classroom door? rather than teaching them how to use their, 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 their technology for a, a, even a much wider range of things. And the answer partly is because, on the whole, people who are in positions of education are pre-native, um, pre-native when it comes to the 
to the technology. They don't have the skills that the. I mean, you know, okay, you think. But go ahead. You, you have a, a, a what? 13, 14 year old? 11. They know much more about technology probably than you yeah, do. And you're terrible. in the media. And you'd admit that happily, I presume. Yeah. yeah. Because that's, because that's a generational thing. But, but isn't there another reason? I don't want to turn this into a conversation just about technology, no, but isn't. isn't there another reason to uh, be wary of technology and its impact on the way we think and the way we cultivate ourselves and engage the world around us, which would be that if you're in the classroom and you bring in your iPhone, sure, you can access a whole bunch of, you know, as you said, every piece of knowledge ever created by humanity but you can also do a bunch of incredibly vapid things. And if you are in class to be discussing uh, Macbeth, it's very easy for you to opt out of that discussion and go in any one of an infinite number of directions into something else without anyone being able to check up on you. And I would just add, and then I'll shut up because you're the panelists, there is nothing like looking at Facebook for me for 20 or 25 minutes to make me the most misanthropic person. <laughs> it, no, honestly, the, the way yeah. people curate their lives, the yeah. things they That's choose right. to yeah. lead with, the pictures of avocado toast that they made for <laughs> Brella, whatever. I, and I, by the way, I know, I know it goes both ways, but I feel like, um, I feel like there's a downside that's worth acknowledging. Well, I think the point is we, we haven't learned yet, I think, how to educate people for that. I mean, I agree that you're supposed to, you're supposed to be reading Macbeth and talking about Macbeth. And I was passing notes to my friends on the, hmm. written, you know, handwritten with the old-fashioned pen hmm. to my friends during talk classes about Macbeth. It wasn't as rich as, as, as doing Facebook under the desk, but I mean, kids will do something that they shouldn't be doing in the class. The technology simply makes it easier to do it. But I mean, so, but in general, I quite agree. But we really have to maybe use the technology such that they haven't, they can't use equivalent of, of, of do Facebook under the desk because they're, they're doing Macbeth using their iPhone. So um, we're perhaps we're not thinking adequately about how to make the technology work for the things we want kids to be doing in the class rather than it being a distraction from what they would like them to be doing. I don't think, I mean, I'm not totally optimistic about this. There are issues. The technology is with us. We can't escape it. Let's try and use it more effectively, whether it's for Macbeth or getting them to get involved in service learning or whatever. I, I agree with that. I, uh, I, I co-wrote a book with my students, so it was primarily written by millennials, on the ethical, uh, the ethical ripple effects of creativity and innovation, and they chose a particular innovation. One of them was digital digitally mediated. So we're talking about technology that's digitally, digital mediation. And I don't allow, actually, uh, these in my classroom because part of my class is in-person collaboration and they need to learn how to talk one-on-one -on -one because humans, we don't curate when we're speaking live, right? We have ums and half the time, half the, if we think about our conversations, half the fun, if you listen to them, is the, the in-betweens and the pauses and mm. where you restart your sentences. And so I uh, have run into some students that they don't like that anymore. They're like, get back to me when you know what to say. Or I was hiking one time with somebody I had met on a hike, and he said, I'm not going to tell that to you because it's on my website page. I was like, Mr. I'm in the mountains and I'm not going to look you up now when I get back. <laughs> you know, we were having a perfectly nice conversation. That's what you do when you're hiking. And so, so I do worry about it, but I do take the point that Helen is saying is like, okay, we need to figure out 
when it's proper to be mediated and when it's not. Yeah. But I do think that I, I certainly don't hope that that's the only way that we maintain civic engagement is oh, that it's, uh, that voting is through our iPhones and we never mm. actually see each other because I actually like getting my little sticker after I mm. vote and Thanks. saying hello and to the people who, who run the polls. I think mm. there's something valuable to that as well. Um, I just, um, I, I'm just finishing right now a, a four-year study where I followed sort of co groups of high school teenagers from the, you know, from basically the start of high school to the end of high school, so this current class of 2017. And one of the, and we sort of surveyed and interviewed kids every year, and one of the questions we asked them was sort of where do you, where do you get your news about the world? And um, to sort of a, to a surprising degree, they were, you know, for those of you who, you know, who, who log on to Facebook from time to time, like there's a little itty bitty margin on the side that has kind of trending articles. Mm -hmm. and, um, and a staggeringly high percentage of students were telling me like, oh, like, well, sometimes I click on some of those, like, and that's, you know, and, and I end up reading things there. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I mean, I think that was interesting in two ways. Like one, over a couple of months ago, there was sort of this, you know, uproar and debate about sort of the algorithm by which Facebook decided which of those articles appear. You know, because I think um, some, some organizations were saying that more liberal-leaning news organizations were sort of getting precedence in that, in that news feed. And then more recently, there's been, I mean, you know, there's been, there's been a lot in the news about, like, fake news, appear, you know, sort of getting to people through these, through these means. And, and I think that those are both very legit, mm -hmm. like, very serious things to be mm -hmm. thinking about. Like, at least, be, at least, like, my, in my interactions with young people as part of this, this work, that really is a substantial mechanism for, mm -hmm. for the delivery of, delivery of news. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing a graph, I think BuzzFeed came up with it, uh, of the, the relative popularity of fake news, by which I mean stories that were about things that simply were untrue, not stories that were deemed to be too critical of mm -hmm. one candidate or the other, but objectively untrue stories. And their popularity as the election approach approached far outpaced the popularity of standard, real journalism, which maybe raises a question of to what extent the, the goals that you all have in mind rely on a well-informed populace. Is it possible to, Shauna, develop a uh, well thought through sense of purpose, for example, if you are not um, extremely well informed. And I would ask that of, of the, uh, the other two as well. I would say if you, if you don't have a sense of what the common good has or the needs of the common good, then you're probably going to default into a role without necessarily having a strong purpose, a strong understanding of why you're doing it. That is one drawback if you, if you don't understand the bigger picture. And I think that media broadly conceived does that because you don't you can't experience everything in the world directly you run out of time Helen <laughs> I think um, my supermarket has National Enquirer on it and I never I don't know the circulation of National Enquirer is but I think it's the most rich example of bizarre fake news ever and certainly fake news wasn't invented by modern technology. Um, I, I think, but I think, really, how do, you, how do you educate people to be able to see the difference between fake news? Um, and there's different, I, mean, I think it's different kinds of fake news. There's what you might call, you know, 
uh, aliens in my garden, which is National Enquirer fake news. And then there's, you know, fake news about, you know, contemporary politicians and which can actually affect things. But I think, I think the, the, the alien in the garden is a different category from, you know, the wrong kind of story about Hillary Clinton. But I think the... Is that a different kind of category than Hillary Clinton has Parkinson's uh, shot that, photos reveal the truth? Well, that's, that's National Enquirer, too. I remember seeing lots of people who have died ages ago from the terrible diseases the National Enquirer said they had in their 30s. But, yeah. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I, did, I think there's a difference between teaching critical awareness of, um, well, critical skills for how to see through obviously fake news, like the aliens in my garden. It's rather more difficult to, 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 um, to tell people to, to, to judge what was a, an accurate, politically um, biased report, for example. And I think it's something we, we, we can't easily find an answer to, because teaching critical thinking is hard work. I think we, but we have to, to bear in mind, perhaps, first of all, that they, we need to have a climate, perhaps, which says we should be questioning fake news. We should be questioning what the media says. We should be asking whether, if it's different on Fox and CNN, who's right, uh, and so forth. But I, I have to say, we, we need to constantly look at that. But I'm not sure the media is, just as an aside, I'm not sure the media is going in that direction. The no. Times, New York Times just took a bunch of heat for hiring an editorial page writer from the Wall Street Journal, Brett Stevens, if I remember right, who I uh, believe he, he is a climate change I don't think there's a lot of difference between climate change denier and climate change skeptic. I think he calls himself a climate change skeptic. He's also written some other problematic things. But what they want to do is they want to broaden the conversation. They want to incorporate more points of view. Well, I, I think Plus a, out of their bubble. I, mean, I think there is a case to saying that, I mean, this, there is a difference between climate change deniers and climate change skeptics because it's talking about the, the evidence. I mean, I, I, have to know I would what, say the skeptics say they're skeptical so that they can't be well, dismissed as deniers, but I, I agree, we can talk after. There are people who are genuinely climate change skeptics who are looking at scientific evidence and, and not interpreting the same way. And there are climate change skeptics who basically start off not believing anything at all. I mean, an interesting example, a fascinating example in a different area of science is the extraordinarily large number of people in this country who believe in young, young Earth creationism, far more than in any other advanced country or even less advanced country in the world. I mean, it's a bizarre situation, the, the way the Americans view of evolution is bizarre compared to any other um, country. And it's bizarre particularly given how many Nobel Prize winners you have in science. Why is it that people in this country are persuaded by, uh, by Genesis when they're not persuaded in any other country in the world? Uh, you know, what's, what has happened to, uh, to education that so many people hold these um, anti-scientific views? Well, don't leave us hanging. What's, <laughs> what's the answer? Oh, heavens. That's What's a great the I, I honestly, I've been wondering about this for years since I came to live in this country, because I, I, I came here 15 years ago thinking, you know, in simple terms, that I knew the answers. Of course, I don't. But I think this, one of the reasons is that you have a long tradition of um, bib, um, a, a fundamentalist beliefs generally, going right back to the Puritans, who were basically sort of, you know, Calvinists and, and, and fundamentalists. And I think there's a sense in which that's remained in the country. So there's a, first of all, a, a tendency to literal fundamentalism. Secondly, I think also there's a, um, a sense that religion is a central part of people's lives. Paradoxically, despite the separation of church and state, you have the highest attendance in churches. 
of, I think, of any industrial country. Uh, so I think there's a, a strong sense that religion's an important part of all people, everywhere in, in, in people's lives. So there's more of a, more of a tendency to perhaps to, to take unquestioningly, particularly not very well educated, certain um, fundamentalist beliefs, which is not the case in fairly secular Europe, for example. That's not an adequate answer, because I don't, I don't think it's a complete answer. It's just a worrying situation, at least for those of us who happen to believe in science. Just, just, to, just to connect you know, to, our, to our topic, you know, I, mean, I will say that um, religiosity and sort of church attendance is one of the highest predictors of civic engagement. Uh, oh, right, that, you know, exactly. That, um, you know, so that, that it, you know, be, because like the church remains an institution, or really religious organizations remain institutions through, you know, through, which, um, through which people do, do sort of engage civically in, in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, which is, which is sort of unbalanced, I'm guessing, you know, um, probably 15 years ago now, um, Robert Putnam at Harvard wrote this book called Bowling Alone, where he sort of exhaustively described all of the ways mm. that Americans are less engaged in institutions than, than they were 30 years, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and he called it Bowling Alone because, you know, even attendance in bowling leagues is, you know, is, is a tiny percentage of, you know, of what it was at one point. Mm. Um, but, but religious institutions do remain sort That's of a great. mechanism for for civic engagement. And an important one. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think it's very important to, to not, I'm not knocking religion. Yeah, yeah, of course, I'm just of pointing course. out, I'm yeah. not, absolutely yeah, 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 not. Yeah. No. Um, we may be getting close to, to time to open up to questions. Does anyone have a watch? I mm -hmm. intelligently failed to wear one. Quarter to seven? Five of seven. Um, let me just throw one more question at the three of you. I'm glad you brought up Robert Putnam. Sean and I were talking before this event about whether there's been a an increase in individualism in the mm. United States, whether there's been a fundamental shift away from the communal, that's my phrase, not yours. Putnam obviously thinks that there was sort of an ideal time before now mm. when we were more civically engaged. I'm wondering if the three of you think he's right or wrong. Sean? I don't think he's right or wrong. I guess I wouldn't put it in, in those terms. So individual means it, it, somebody has integrity in undivided. It doesn't mean isolation, and it doesn't mean that it should be that everything circles into me. So how is it that the individual connects to other individuals That's and to institutions? Religious participation also predicts purpose and vice versa. And it seems to me it's, again, focusing on, on the connections, the relationship. Scott. It's some of uh, his work is on inequality, and I think a lot about uh, diversity is considered a value, right? If you have a diversity of trees in the forest, it's more likely to survive versus a blight coming through and killing all the same trees. So the more different ways that people think or different interests that are interacting, we have a stronger society. At the same time, going back to Google or Yelp or these algorithms and popularity where we watch each other, right? We, we mimic each other. That's how we learn. We're social learners. And if, if those algorithms can be gamed so or gerrymandered, uh, gerrymandering does the same thing, such that diversity becomes disparity, then it's a problem. That's mm -hmm. inequality. Uh, and so how, how do we, uh, going back to to religious participation, there's definitely beyond the self there. Uh, and there's also generalized trust there. 
And part of uh, going back to Putnam then is, I think he was talking about generalized trust, which is it's not just tit for tat, tit for tat, or my group, in group, out group. It's like there's a certain generalized trust in society such that if I walk out on the street, I'm going to be okay. Uh, or de Tocqueville, right? We had all these nonprofit organizations, and he felt, you know, that was back in the 1800s. He felt that there was something magical about the United States because we hadn't become cynical, or as cynical as he felt Europe had become at the time. And so I think about, not in terms of whether or not he was right or wrong, or individual versus communal, but the individuals, we need to figure out that general trust. And I think that's one of the things that people are concerned about now with recent events. Uh, and and uh, it's talked about in terms of the social fabric, I guess. Yeah. I, think, I, think, I think we are less connected than, than, than previous generations, like so sort of society. And I think there's lots of, there's lots of things contributing to that. I mean, I think that, um, you know, my, my grandfather was able to work 40 hours a week and be the sole breadwinner and, you know, live a solidly middle-class life, like, and that for, and with plenty of time to, you know, to, to be engaged in his community and to have hobbies and to go to his children's sporting events and musical performances. And I think that societally we've, you know, for, for a variety of reasons you see people working a lot more. Um, I also think that, I mean, I also think that, like, you know, Shauna pointed to diversity. I think our greater, like, our great, our growing diversity as a nation and our growing heterogeneity, which I think is wildly important in an overall positive, has, like, does, does impact, like, our, our, our feelings of connectedness. Like, I mean, there's, you know, there's this, this famous psychology study that found that, um, you know, that we are, it was, it was in England, um, I believe, but um, that, um, that individuals were, were more likely to come to the aid of someone sort of, you know, Feigning a heart, you know, having a heart attack, so you know, seemingly having a heart attack on the street, if they're wearing the soccer shirt of the team that they've rooted for, rather than the team that they didn't root for, like, you know, and and it's sort of a you know, sort of a famous study about the extent to which we sort of are more likely to to feel civically connected to someone that we feel we feel a close tie to, like you know, whether it's a sports team or a religious you know, a religious connection or so on. And so, so I think that, I mean, on balance, I think that our growing, our growing diversity as a nation represents an, you know, an important strength. Like, um, and, and the fact that we're, well, that we're probably less, we're, we are more assimilated than many other countries, um, you know, in terms of where people, you know, in terms of where people live and how people live their lives. But, but, but there are probably ways in which we are as a nation still, still figuring out what that means in terms of our responsibilities to one another. All right, Helen, you get the last word on whether it was better back in the day, and then we should let Well, as I say, I, I, I've lived in Britain most of my life, so I can't comment on American life so much. When I read uh, Putnam's book, I, I loved the ideas, but I felt he was slightly, sentimental, slightly sentimentalizing the past. I think the idea of, of having a, the importance of connections and the idea that we should uh, make bridges and bonds with other people uh, was an important one, but I think he was being somewhat romantic about the past. But I do agree that we, we, we need those connections. It, it, in a way, one needs to find what, think of ways in which, as we fragment or become diverse, we can find different ways of connecting. So the soccer shirt example, if that means that the soccer shirt worn by somebody of a different ethnic or religious group makes me, us linked to them, despite the fact that they're a different color or different religion, that's fine. I mean, it, it may be the soccer shirt rather than the cross around the neck or the Sarah David that makes the link, but let's have the links. 
and the, those links could cut across traditional, traditional boundaries that actually separated us. Thank you all. Thank for you coming. so much. Thank you to Donna and Scott and Helen.